Hey, it's Miles, and you are listening to the Auburn Community Church Podcast. Normally, you hit play on this, and we jump straight into a sermon, but we wanted to take a second and invite everyone in our extended family into this season of generosity that we're stepping into as a church. We want to invite you, if you're a podcast listener, you follow along with what God has been doing through our church in this season please pray and consider whether or not God is calling you to give a financial gift above and beyond what you would normally give. It's no secret that this is a time of crazy expansion for our church as we're opening a new building and new locations and saying yes to missionaries and local ministries and ministry initiatives all over the place. And we want to invite you to participate in what God is doing through our church. This is by no means a burden or you have to give. This is a blessing and we feel like we get to give and you're invited into it. So whether that's on Venmo or on our website or reaching out about all the ways to give, maybe think about starting the discipline of giving weekly or monthly, even if that's just $5 or $10 or $15. We want to invite our people to invest into what God is doing through Auburn Community Church. We love you guys. Now enjoy this message. Well, years ago, back when my wife Courtney and I were dating, we had some friends of ours who we were really close to but they were not believers in Jesus. And we would initiate that conversation. At the time, I'm a college student aspiring to be a pastor, which is strange for the average person. So that, that came up pretty quickly within our friendship. And, and we would try to have conversations about faith and try to take things a little bit deeper, but it was always met with a little bit of a, oh, that's y'all's thing, not really our thing. And we had invited this couple to church and they'd never taken us up on it. So we were shocked that year when on Christmas Eve, without telling us, this couple walked through the doors of the church that we were attending at the time. And you know how it is in the South on Christmas Eve. Churches are packed out, barely any spaces to sit. So we literally, because we didn't know they were coming, we didn't have seats on our row, but there were two seats right in front of us. So we got two friends who we've been praying for, believing that God is going to speak to in front of us, and then the pastor who's getting up there to give the message that day. And I don't know if I'm the only one who's ever felt this way, but have you ever listened to a sermon where you were not listening at all? You were listening for the person you brought with you, and you're just praying the whole time. You're like, please don't talk about tithing. Like, please don't make this about giving your money away. Just, I hope this is good. I hope this speaks to people. And so we're watching him and we're watching them and we're just kind of leaned in going, okay, God, we, we, th- they came here. This is the moment. You're going to move in a powerful way. And I just remember being mortified as I watched for about 30 minutes, a guy tell stories about ice cream. And I don't say this to slam or hate on another pastor or another church. I just tell you to tell you this is what was going on in me at the time. But for 30 minutes, a guy got up there and not one mention of the gospel, not one mention of the cross or forgiveness or eternity, heaven, hell, purpose, freedom, nothing of substance that you would want for someone who finally took the bold step to walk through the doors of the church. And I just remember feeling helpless, sitting there, bowing my head. And and I knew in the back of my mind that maybe one day I would get the honor and the privilege of being a local church pastor. But in my spirit, in that moment, I was just like, God, if I ever get the chance to stand where that man got to stand today, I promise you I'm not going to waste it. 
I'm going to make sure that somebody gets to hear about the reason they have breath in their lungs. That somebody gets to hear about the love of God manifested in Christ Jesus. That we don't walk away from tonight feeling like, oh, we checked the box that we attended church on Christmas Eve. Because really, that doesn't matter all that much. What matters is whether or not we make much of Jesus. So for whatever time I have, and I promise I'm not going to talk long. I know we only got child care for kids five and under. We got some kids in the room who've got some coloring packets, which that's exciting. Uh, and we got all kind of spaces that we're leaving after this and things to do. And even as I talk about the things to do, your mind might be full of other things. I totally get that. I am not trying to keep you here long. But what I am trying to do is collectively give us a vision of the life you were created for. I want to argue on Christmas Eve, that living for Jesus Christ is better than any other option you have for your life. And exalting him and worshiping him is actually the reason why you have breath in your lungs. If you've been with us, you know we've been in the Gospel of Luke since August. And we planned at the beginning to end it on Christmas Eve in Luke's account of the Christmas story because it's the most detailed one but we've been talking about the invitation of Jesus for months, and now we're going to see the ultimate invitation on Christmas to what the story of God is all about. The title of the grand finale of our Luke series is called God's Glory, Our Joy. God's Glory, Our Joy. Look at somebody next to you say, Glory. Glory. Look at, look at the person you just ignored again and say, Joy. Joy. God's Glory, Our Joy. Hey, to the best of your ability... Please, when you look at those four words and you hear me say, God's glory, our joy, resist the temptation to think that that is a good title for a Christmas sermon. Because if you know the Christmas story in the Bible, you know those themes are there and you're gonna see it in just one second. These four words are not just a theme from the Christmas story. These four words are actually the theme of God's story, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. God is all about his glory. This might come as a shock to some of you who are new, but everything in the created world was created with one purpose in mind, the praise of God's glorious grace. That's what Ephesians says. So this planet exists, the cosmos exists, you exist, animals exist, seas exist, everything created exists to magnify and make a big deal about who God is. Now, that could lead you to think, even just hearing that, that, oh, God is an egomaniac who needs more attention and more praise and more songs for some reason, so he created everything to make himself look awesome. But then you find out the other side of that equation is that God's glory is equated with the joy of humanity through the story of the scriptures and the story of humanity. That God has actually tied your pleasures, your happiness, with him being glorified. And the combination of these two things is such a shock for most Christians, especially those like me who grew up in the Bible Belt, when you find out that not only did God create you for his glory, but the way you glorify him at the highest level is by enjoying him. See, most of us were taught growing up, oh, let's live a life glorifying to God. Let's read our Bibles more. Let's attend church more. Let's stop doing these things and let's start doing these things. And that's how you glorify God. But actually, according to the scriptures, the pathway to glorifying God the most is by being the happiest you can in him. There's one line that Pastor John Piper says again and again that has impacted my ministry probably more than any other singular line 
if you have questions about what we're all about as a church, this, this is it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There's a direct connection between God getting glory through your life and you being satisfied in him. And that's why the headline reads, Jesus wins. There's a double meaning there. Jesus wins is the story of humanity. God gets the glory. And Jesus wins is the story of your life when you enjoy Jesus more than you enjoy any other option you have. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It is exactly when I'm enjoying God the most that I glorify him the most. And the problem so many of us have, especially the Christians in the room who have heard about joy, is most of us hear a word like joy and we view it as a circumstantial bonus if life goes the way we thought it should go. Oh, joy to the world. Joy is what I feel when my bank account's going up or when a new relationship is blossoming or everything's going as it should be. Joy is my rightful reaction to that. But actually, when you read the Bible, joy is not just a bonus that happens when life goes the way you wanted it to go. Joy is the necessary fuel it takes to make it and persevere as a Christian. Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I want to argue tonight that joy is intended to be the source of every Christian and the mechanism God uses for us to glorify and honor him. And the bad news about that tonight is that in 2022, we are living in an all-time shortage on joy. The last few years have revealed that. In fact, the last few years, we've had shortages on pretty much everything you can have a shortage on. This week, I had that thought like, oh, we're in such a shortage on joy. I was like, I wonder what the biggest shortages were in 2022. Y'all wanna know what the number one shortage was in our country in 2022? This is heartbreaking. You ready? Butter. That was number one. Like, how does that happen? A combination of supply chain issues related all the way back to COVID, wars that are happening around the world, we, we literally started to run out of butter. Number two, you might remember this one, was baby formula. Super scary earlier in 2022. Number three, equally as scary, hummus. Like that, you hear, some of y'all are like, whoa, we did? Yeah, you managed to make it through, amazingly, miraculously. Number four was sriracha. Like some of y'all who carry hot sauce everywhere you go were almost in a major life emergency that hit you. I, I read through this list, it was endless of things that there have been shortages on the last couple of years. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know that that's what life has been like since 2020. But I would argue beneath anything that was said on that list, at, at, at foundational level, the number one shortage in our country and in our world the last three years is a shortage on joy. You don't need me to tell you that we're at record all-time rates of mental illness, of suicide, of depression, and of general hopelessness. And it's easy for me to stand up here and go, oh, people are taking their lives like never before and people need medication just to like make it through the day and have a mindset on joy. And, and, and all of that needs to be talked about and addressed. But I also wanna talk about the fact that most of us have just learned to live with a low-grade apathy and anger toward life. Like you don't wake up and default to joy you default toward being apathetic. And if something happens that you weren't expecting, maybe you'll be joyful. And yet the scripture confronts us with this idea. The way you are called to glorify God, the reason why you, are, you exist, is by delighting in God. So my assignment from God at ACC this Christmas 
is somehow through the Christmas story, can we make joy abound again at Auburn Community Church? Can we make joy normal? Can we make it infectious? Can we walk around with a level of joy that comes from knowing Jesus in light of the greatest story forever told? Did you bring your Bible on Christmas Eve, church? If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up, hold it up high. Okay, it's fewer than a Sunday, guys. Fewer than a Sunday, hold it up. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna take a little poll. But non-Bible bringers, you can participate too. You can raise your phone, but we'll all be looking at you and judging you. Okay, <laughs> quick question, I, cause, just because I'm curious. What do you enjoy more? We're talking about joy, what do you enjoy more? Honestly, Christmas breakfast slash brunch or Christmas dinner? I'm just curious about this. If you enjoy Christmas breakfast slash brunch more, raise your hand or your Bible or your phone. I just want to see it. Whoa, that's way less than I thought. This one's mine. It just hits different, right? Like there's something different about Christmas morning breakfast. You say dinner, raise yours right now. That is so shocking. I guess you all have a chef in your family. Turn with me to Luke chapter two. I just threw some shade at Bancroft's in the fifth row over here. All right, Luke chapter two. We're gonna start in verse one. This is a story that if you grew up in church, you heard a lot. This is the first story I read in my Bible growing up. I had a blue Bible from Roswell Street Baptist Church. I was a royal ambassador. And so they give you this blue Bible when you're in, was yours blue, Gage? Because I know you grew up in the same church. It was green? Okay, green was your year. That's, that's wonderful. It's more Christmassy. It's good. But I, I remember it, it, I kept the bookmark in it in Luke 2 because I always look forward to Christmas every year. And I've read this more times than I can count, but I guess until this year, I've never really accounted for how central the themes of God's glory and our joy are in the Christmas narrative. So that's what I want you looking for. We're gonna read 21 verses, and then we're gonna talk about it. Luke chapter two, verse one, if you're there, say I'm there. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now watch this. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. 
When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. This story, these 21 verses, are the reason why this weekend billions of people are celebrating Christmas. This is it. This is what it's all about. And most of us know why, because we know that this is not the end of the story. We know about the cross, we know about the empty tomb, and we know that this is going to unfold in such a way that's going to reshape history to the degree that it's literally 2022 right now because it's been about 2,000 years since this moment. Our entire time system was reshaped by this baby boy's life. But in the narrative of his birth, this looks nothing like a history-changing moment. If you just read it and delete the fact that you know other things about the story, it's really not that impressive. In fact, the most impressive thing about Luke chapter two at the time is in verse one. Caesar Augustus issued a decree. If you don't know your history that well, you're not really a history person, I am and love studying stuff like this. Caesar Augustus was one of the most important leaders in all of history. His name was Octavian. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar and he literally seized the throne through a propaganda campaign where he claimed to be the son of God. Changes his name when he becomes ruler of Rome to Caesar Augustus. And at the time of Jesus' birth, he's at the climax of his power where the Roman Empire has stretched further than it ever has before. He has so much power that he can literally call for a census that's rooted in taxation and how they take money from those they oppress. And people, no matter where they are, when Caesar calls for a census, they have to go home and register. And that includes this poor family in the line of David in a nation called Israel, which is just subjected to the power of Rome, just like they were subjected to so many other nations and empires before. This guy in the line of David is betrothed. He's engaged to be married to this girl named Mary. She's pregnant. They have to travel 95 miles from Galilee to Bethlehem. And when they are about to have their first child, there is literally no space for them. This is how poor they are and how rejected they are. They are sent to a barn to give birth among animals, and this baby is placed in a manger. Now, we got to stop romanticizing the manger. This isn't like a Tempur-Pedic mattress manger where this baby's like living in it. No, no, no. This is a feeding trough for the most disgusting animal at the time, pigs. Caesar Augustus, all power and glory and influence. Poor baby boy. And you want to tell me that this is how God chose to enter in to the story. And when he does, it's no accident that angels have something to say about this miracle. The incarnation is the greatest miracle we could possibly be talking about tonight, that God would become one of us. But when that moment happens, the angels have a very specific take on it. Read Luke chapter 2, verse 9 again. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now think about them. The angel decides to appear to a group of shepherds. These are like 
lower end socioeconomically, even lower end spiritually. Shepherds weren't known to be the most moral people. So when God's got the initial announcement in mind, he announces it to a group that no one would normally choose. And it says this, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. See, when the glory of God shows up in the Bible, it's usually not a pleasant thing because where sin and glory collide, the sinful human being wants to crouch on the ground and hide. And they're terrified. That's why the first words angels usually say are, do not be afraid. Because if you saw one, you'd be scared. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause what? Great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Good news that will cause great joy. What's the good news that will cause great joy? It's threefold. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Do not miss this. All three of those terms mean different things. When Jesus was born, the good news that causes great joy is threefold. Number one, he was born savior. The language of savior invokes a feeling of rescue. He's come to save That's why in the book of Revelation, when there's a story that mirrors the Christmas story where a woman is giving birth to a baby and there's a dragon trying to kill the baby, it's supposed to remind you of Herod killing all the babies in the vicinity of where Jesus was because he was so afraid of losing his power. Make no mistake about it. When Jesus came to earth, this wasn't a pleasant moment with a few songs and, and a starry night. This was the invasion of heaven into earth. This was the kingdom of light coming against the kingdom of darkness. So that what? So that he could save sinful humanity from their sins. Jesus came as a deliverer, a rescuer who would give his life for you and for me. And every time on Christmas we celebrate that a savior has been born, we're celebrating that we have a shot at a right relationship with God and hope for all of eternity in heaven forever and ever and ever. Jesus is born savior and we celebrate it. That's joy. He was also born Messiah. Your version might say Christ. That's a title. It means anointed one. This could shock you and and just ruin your your worldview for a second, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means anointed one that literally signifies the fulfillment of the promises of God. That everything spoken by the law and the prophets is now coming to pass through the birth of this baby. It means when God speaks a promise, it's as good as done the moment he speaks it. Jesus is Savior and Messiah. Watch this. Best one of all, Lord. That word Lord is Yahweh. It means he's Savior, he's anointed one, and he's God equal with God. 2,000 years ago, when you said Jesus is Lord, that wasn't like a, yeah, he's like personally the Lord of my life. It meant, no, I believe that human who lived and died on a cross and rose again, I believe he's God too. And united with God, he brings us into right relationship with God. This is a point that Luke will make repeatedly throughout his gospel and in the book of Acts, which we're going to look at next semester. When When Peter was preaching on Pentecost, he made the statement, God has made this Christ who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is 
God. And the combination of those three things, Savior, Messiah, and Lord, is the good news that causes great joy. And the reason why we're talking about God's glory and our joy is because when that announcement goes out, there's a song that multitudes of angels cannot help but sing. And here's how it goes in verse 13. It says, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God, peace on earth. God gets all the attention and the praise. In humanity, what do we get? Peace and favor from God. The story of the Bible is about God getting the glory and us getting the joy. And the summary of what it means to be a Christian is to enjoy for your entire life the work that Jesus has done for you and then magnify that times a billion for all of eternity. That's it. That's the gospel. And the problem for so many of us is when we've heard the gospel preached, we've heard a version of following Jesus that looks like diminishing our desires not maximizing them. As I'm telling you, like God created you for his glory and the way you glorify him is just enjoying what's been done for you, delighting in him, praising him and and making him your highest happiness. As you hear that, that's backward from what so many of us were told, which is, okay, when you become a Christian, take those desires within you, like desires for sex or an appetite for greed or for more of this or your life to go this way. Take those desires and make them smaller, and that's what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is to get your life together and become more obedient to God on paper. But actually, becoming a Christian is not about diminishing your desires. It's way more about maximizing them. Jesus shows up and says, your desires are not too big, they're too small. Because you want and pine for things that will ultimately leave you empty, I will offer you the one real thing that will satisfy your soul for all of eternity and show you what true happiness actually really looks like. Jesus is showing up going, I'm coming to offer life. And so many of us picture Jesus inviting us into this sacrificial life where nothing's fun, Nothing's enjoyable. Everything's all about sacrificing. Wait, isn't he the one who said, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross daily and follow me? Yeah, and then right after that, he said, if you want to find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. When Jesus invites us to follow him and sacrifice, he's not being radical. He's being logical. And he's going, okay, well, you could spend your whole life trying to grab after things that look like they're going to fulfill you and look like they're going to make you happy and look like they're going to please you. But actually, they're only going to increase the level of inner turmoil and brokenness that you were born into this world with because of sin. But here's the thing. If you lose your life for my sake, you get pleasures that will far outweigh all of those things that are competing. Jesus is better. And this Christmas, I want us to feast on our deepest desires in God. And I also want us to understand that sin is not what happens when we do things wrong. Sin is actually what happens when we don't trust that what God wants for us is our deepest, greatest joy. That's not my line. I got I to give it where, where credit is due. It's a saint in church history, Ignatius of Loyola. He said it this way. This is gold. He said, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me 
is only my deepest happiness. Let that sink in, y'all. Sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. This is Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't sin when they ate an apple that was forbidden. They sinned when they believed the lie that God was holding out something from them that they really wanted and needed. They believed a lie about the character of God. And you and I do the same thing. Sin is when I fail to trust that God's heart for me is happiness. I'm telling you, God wants you to be happy. And some of y'all might be shocked because you're like, wait, this, we come to this church because they don't do the prosperity thing. Like they, I, I don't know about this whole happiness thing. No, I'm not talking about superficial, circumstantial happiness because things went a certain way. I'm talking about an eternal happiness that far exceeds anything this world has to offer you. And in this type of a worldview, God's glory and our joy, suffering now only increases the eternal joy you experience in Christ. So some of you are here today and you're like, great, I, I'm, I came to hear a sermon about being happy and I'm literally walking through cancer right now. That is at least one person in this audience and probably more. We're literally on the brink of divorce and pastor wants to say, be happy in God this year. Suffering is real. But I'll tell you this, if you don't have Jesus, suffering is pointless and is only going to get worse. You got no Jesus, you're suffering, you think it's bad now? With an eternal mindset, the brokenness that you experience on this planet is as good as it will ever be for you. But you suffer as a Christian? 2 Corinthians 4 teaches that every ounce of suffering we experience as Christ followers is producing in us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs the suffering we experienced. There's something about this being an eternal story where your soul, which is eternal, actually gets expanded in joy the more that you suffer. So from the smallest amount of suffering, like stubbing your toe, which actually is not that small some days. I'm like, ow, yes, something like that. All the way to walking through the valley of the shadow of death. All of it is producing something. It's not pointless. It's not meaningless. It's actually producing a joy that you will get to step into for all of eternity. We have to change our perspective about the glory of God and see it as our ultimate opportunity to walk in joy. And for a church that has gotten so serious about mature discipleship. This is the message that God gave me to end this year. If you're new, we've been on a journey for about a year and a half now of getting serious about mature discipleship. What we mean about that is we're tired of seeing people fall away from God or fade out of the church as they get older. We love baptisms and people deciding to follow Jesus for the first time. Those moments are powerful, but we would so rather see you build your life on Jesus for decades and finish well. And so we've been asking the question, what does it mean to become a mature disciple? And here's what we found. Instead of trying to just transform people's actions or thoughts, the greatest thing you could do to take someone into deeper maturity as a disciple is help them transform their longings. Because your actions, what you do, you make your Christian life about that, you're gonna be frustrated. Oh, I'll just stop doing these things and start doing these things. Now you're a machine. Well, then you read Romans 12 about renewing your mind and being transformed by the way that you think, and you go, okay, yeah, yeah, that's what I need to do. Not just change my actions, but if I change my thoughts, I can change my actions. Let me just take you a step deeper than that. 
What will guide your thoughts at the deepest level is what you long for. And if you learn to long for and desire Jesus more than you desire sin, you will mature to a whole new level in your relationship with God. That's why every week when we present the gospel, I don't get up here and go, hey, if you agree in your mind that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again, and you accept the Holy Spirit in your mind, you'll become a Christian. No, the invitation to become a Christian is not, do you agree to these things in your mind? The invitation is, do you see Jesus as the highest treasure, all satisfying desire? I want him more than I want anything or anyone else. That's a Christian. Are you there? Has God opened your eyes to actually see Jesus that way? And when he does, you will be changed forever. And that doesn't just happen in a moment. That, that's actually the secret to fighting and defeating debilitating sin. Joy in God. This is a, a shocker, especially as I get the opportunity and several people on our staff team do to coach so many young guys who are wondering, like, what do I do with this addiction issue, particularly sexually? What, what, what do I do with all these issues that I just can't figure out and I can't become obedient to God? And we tell them, you're making the mistake of fighting fire with water. Being a Christian isn't about taking the Bible like water to all the fire that exists in your soul for all these sinful things. Being a Christian is about lighting another fire that burns brighter and engulfs all of these previous desires. You fight fire with fire. You become more passionate about Jesus and enjoy him more than you enjoy sin. Over the course of a lifetime, your appetite and desire for him will grow to not just become larger, but completely dominate the things you thought you used to want and need. This is what it means to go deeper in your faith. I'm saying mature Christianity is who's enjoying Jesus the most. And can we abound in joy? Can we say like the psalmist in Psalm 84, my favorite psalm to quote, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I would rather be standing by that door as y'all walk in to worship God on Christmas Eve and exalting Jesus with you than at any party with any amount of pleasure or possessions this world has to offer. And the reason why I'm there and I want you to be there is because 21 years ago, I saw it. Jesus is better and I gave my life to it. And do you wanna know what I found out for 21 years? Jesus is better. I found it out two different ways. By trusting it and being grateful, like, okay, God, I, I don't feel it, but I, f I believe you're better and I'm gonna bank on it and I've made decisions. And you know what I feel on the back end of making those decisions? Gratitude. Because I go, I'm so glad I listened to you and did that the way you wanted me to do it. You know what else I've done? The opposite of what God calls me to do. I've believed the lie that Jesus is not better. And I've thought God's holding out on me. I'm gonna find my own way. You know what I found out on the back end of those decisions? Sorrow, regret, and shame. And I've said to myself, it would have been so much better if I did that his way. Jesus is better. What if this Christmas in your life, across every life in this room, there was a clear vision of here's everything else I could give my life to, and here's Jesus. And if living for his glory is the maximum amount of joy I can experience as a human being, then I want what he's offering. That's what he came down from heaven to offer you. That's what Christmas is all about. And that's what we're going to celebrate here tonight. Quickly, because I'm out of time. How do you enjoy God more than you enjoy sin? That's where I want to land this thing.
because you know how to enjoy tangible things. Like you know how to enjoy a dessert. You eat it. You, you know how to enjoy an activity. You do it. How do you enjoy a God who's unseen? Practically speaking. Now that, that could lead to a whole other set of sermons and books that need to be written, but I want to give you two quick things, and then you can go eat ham or whatever it is that you do leading up to Christmas. Number one, number one, there's only two. Number one, really, really quick. Learn to pursue a life of worship pleasing to God. Learn to pursue a life of worship pleasing to God. Plot twist. You won't find happiness in God by doing what makes you happy. You'll find happiness in God by doing what makes God happy. His pleasure has to become your pleasure. That's why in Nehemiah, it says the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's not your joy that you choose. It's his and you bask in it. Here's what you'll find out. God's pleasure is not at all at odds with your joy. They are one and the same. How is that possible? Because he's a good father. I'm excited about a lot tonight and tomorrow. I love Christmas. As the father of three little girls, do you want to know by far what I am the most excited about? Tomorrow morning. Why? Because I have daughters who are going to be reverberating with joy, happiness, laughter, or at least they better be. <laughs> and do you know, as a dad, who's a decent father, compared to God, a terrible father, nothing brings me higher joy than to see them delighting in something. Why do you think that God is a lesser father than the dads in this room? If that's how we are, if that's how much we enjoy life as dads, what do you think the creator of the universe is like? You learn to find out through the scriptures what does a life pleasing to him look like? You live your life pleasing to God and you find out that that's what pleases you. It doesn't look appealing on the surface, but that's because sin has blinded you. You get underneath that and live a lifestyle of worship, you will find more joy than you ever dreamed. You know the truth that I've learned that brings me more joy than any other joy? If, I, if, you, if you miss everything I said tonight, do not miss this. The one truth that has brought me more joy in life than any other truth, and some of you have learned this, some of you have not, and you need to hear this. One truth bring you the most joy. It's this. Life is not about you. It is not. And if you believe it is, you'll be miserable. Chase your comfort, your convenience, your stuff, your story, your fame, your game. Do it your way. We'll see. See if that produces true joy. But what happens? In the freedom of self-forgetfulness, you go, whoa, life's not about me, and the more I embrace that, this is awesome because I get true joy that springs forth from going, he's God, I'm not, but I'm valued. A lifestyle of worship pleasing to God is, is not just like the medicine for a, a hungry and thirsty soul, it's the medicine for a weary soul. Come on, Jesus diagnosed anxiety in the Sermon on the Mount, and he said the most random, on the surface, dumb thing he has ever said. We make a big deal about it without thinking about it. Like, hold on, wait, what did you just say? When Jesus said, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you drink, what was his answer to not worrying? By the way, this is the greatest need in our culture and in our church right now. His answer was, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you. In other words, oh, are you anxious? Are you freaking out? Are you worried? 
Just make me the king of your life and make everything in your life about chasing me, praising me, following me, and you won't be worried anymore. Man, if he's not God, that's the most egotistical, self-centered thing I've ever heard in my life. But if he is God, he's on to something. And he is. You want to know what Jesus has to say about all of our anxiety? And, I, and I'm not saying this as, a, as an escape from, okay, counseling's a bad thing or medication's a bad thing. No, great things sent by God. There, there are right places and right spaces for different conditions. I'm just saying a general statement here. Jesus said this about anxiety because he knows the ultimate reason why we are so anxious is because we are so self-centered. It's all about us. And if it's all about you, that's a heavy weight to carry. But if it's all about him, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This is awesome. You do the heavy lifting and I just get to enjoy pleasing you, praising you, living my life for you. Yes, Merry Christmas, everybody. It's not on you. Pursue a life of worship, pleasing to God. Live your life as an aroma, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And you'll find out in the long run, it wasn't that much of a sacrifice. Number two, accept that in Christ Jesus, God is pleased with you. Accept that in Christ Jesus, God is pleased with you. Oh, y'all, y'all, y'all. Plot twist, plot twist. If you try to live a life pleasing to God in your own effort, you will fail and feel like you are more distant from God than ever. The only way to live a life pleasing to God is to live in light of the fact that because of Jesus, God is already pleased with you. That's why there's a guy in a blazer on this stage freaking out right now. Because I'm telling you, God's not angry with you. He's pleased. And to go deeper in Christian maturity is to go deeper into believing that, accepting it, singing about it, delighting in it, and even believing it when you don't feel like it. I keep quoting Nehemiah, and I don't know why that has become the theme of this Christmas message, but that verse, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Do you want to know when that gets said in Nehemiah? It's Nehemiah 8. People of God just rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They're supposed to be having this party, but everybody's crying and mourning because they know how sinful they've been. They know how bad things have gone for generations. Everybody's crying and freaking out and they're supposed to be having a party. So Nehemiah and Ezra get in front of them and they go, hey, we know you're sad about how bad things have gone, but God doesn't want this festival to be a festival of mourning. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, they say, if you can't be happy, let his joy become your joy. Because Nehemiah knew God wants us celebrating the future he's about to create way more than he wants us mourning the past we wish we could change. You can enjoy the fact that God says, I forgive you. It's okay. You're new. I've got you. You're already pleasing to him because Jesus is. It's the greatest trade-off in all the world. Romans chapter 5, 17. I promise I'm done. For if by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul says, oh, you think death reigned through Adam? Yeah, it did. We got wars and sicknesses and anger and depression and darkness like crazy in 2022. That reigns because of Adam. And Paul says, oh, how much more do you think life will reign 
because the Son of God took an act of righteousness to right what went wrong. But right in the middle, it says, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace. You have to open the gift, y'all. Nothing you get tomorrow will be yours until it's open. You gotta accept it. What's God sliding across the table this Christmas? Abundant provisions of grace. Forgiveness, freedom, new start, new life in him, a life lived for his glory. And he goes, I want you to live your life for me and not for you, but not because I need it, but because you need it. I created you for this. And all I want to happen for Christmas at ACC is for thousands of people to decide to enjoy God this year. I want us to be like the people of God in Nehemiah. I want us to go from here and have parties, eating and drinking and celebrating because God has sent a savior. His name is Jesus. He offers new life and that new life is right there. All you gotta do is take it. All you gotta do is accept it. You can get your elements for communion out right now. We're gonna end this sermon remembering the body and the blood of Jesus. And if you didn't get one of those on the way in and you want one, you can just raise your hand. Someone from our team will bring one to you just a little cracker and a little thing of grape juice. Nothing special in the physical, so significant in the spiritual. We're we're remembering why everything I just said is true. Because Jesus died and gave his life in your place and in mine. As you take communion, do it as an act of celebration. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you want to be, you can absolutely take communion for the very first time and say yes to that. If you're not there, you can just leave that beneath your seat and reflect, no big deal there. But I want husbands praying over their wives, maybe praying over your whole family and just don't waste this time before we sing and go in a thousand different directions. Let's go deeper into God and then we'll sing. Y'all can take communion and then we'll come right back.